When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Manchester's indie rock and roll station. Excess Manchester. The Excess Manchester Long Player. An iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Excess Manchester. Hello, I'm Jim, and this is The Excess Long Player, where I take a classic album and I talk about that classic album with the people who made it today. It is an album that was gargantuan when it was released in 2001, and in fact was the 97th best-selling album of the 2000s decade, which I know doesn't sound particularly impressive, 97th, but when you think about the quantity of albums that were released over that period, it's a pretty impressive accolade, particularly for an indie band. So today I'm talking about The Invisible Band, which is Travis's third album, and one which bore the singles Sing and Side and Flowers in the Window, which if you were listening to the radio in 2001, you would have heard constantly, all the time. They were everywhere. On this podcast, I'm talking to Fran Healy and Dougie Payne from Travis about their memories of making that album as it ticks over 20 years on the planet, because this year, 2021, it celebrated its 20th anniversary, for which a very special deluxe edition was released, which featured remastered songs and rarities and B-sides and photos from the recording sessions and outtakes and loads of stuff to tickle a Travis fan's fancy. We also talk about that a little bit in the interview. So let's get stuck in. Oh, by the way, I talked to Dougie and Fran on separate occasions. So first we're going to hear from Fran Healy. Then a bit later, we're going to hear from Dougie Payne. And it's quite interesting because their memories of the recording and how they felt at the time of the recording, particularly when it came to the pressure, are somewhat different. Let's get stuck into this. First, Fran Healy talking about Travis, the Invisible Band. Hiya, Fran, how you doing? Very good, thanks. You're celebrating 20 years now since the release of The Invisible Band, a special deluxe reissue. What was it like going back to this album almost two decades, well, two, exactly two decades after you first made it? Does it feel like it's that long ago, peering back through the mists of time? No, it doesn't at all. It feels like maybe 10 years ago. It was the same year we released uh, The Invisible Band, the same year as 9-11 happened. So we were in the middle of the promotion and doing all of that kind of stuff when that happened. And that feels, that weirdly feels like 20 years ago, mm. whereas this album doesn't feel like that. I don't know why. Maybe songs are just, they're, songs are more of a, a floaty, timeless thing. But yeah, 20 years, I can't believe it. Do you think that is because... Although it is 20 years since you released this album, it, you haven't spent 20 years away from these songs. It's not like you've True. left them alone and then gone back to them again. And with that in mind, has your relationship with these songs changed? Were you conscious of that when you revisited them from the re-release? The re no, the, the relationship doesn't really change. 
I I don't listen to our albums a lot. You know, what, what, you listen to them about five million times when you're recording them. By the time you've done that, it's time to move on. So you don't generally look back. But um, I did the other day have to check the the cut of this particular record because they're reissuing it, and I have to check how they mastered it and listen for distortion. I don't know what. And I listened to it the whole way through, and uh, I was pleasantly surprised. I liked all the songs, um, even songs I was not so sure of at the time. I was like, wow, it's fine, mm -hmm. it's good. And um, remembering being in the studio and what I was doing, what we were doing that day or that week. And um, so all those memories come back as well. It was a really lovely experience because we were in America and we were in a really cool studio. And, and at the same time, we were the biggest band in the UK and we were like, doing the follow-up mm. to another big album. And so everyone was really excited. Take me back to that time. Did it feel pressured making the album? Because it's it's not your debut album, so it hasn't got the pressure of you have to get it right. It's not the difficult second album. You're kind of, when you get to number three, you're kind of old hands, I guess, at it. So did it feel like there was a pressure or did it feel like you had a certain freedom that maybe you didn't have previously? It's a good question. It's a mixture of all those feelings, but predominantly I was feeling really confident because... We had the songs, we had uh, the singles, like the what mm. were going to be the singles already in our back pocket going into the session. We had about 75% of the record written and the songs, Flowers in the Window Side and Sing were complete. We didn't demo them, we didn't make demos. Nigel didn't want us to make demos. He just wanted us to come in with songs and a guitar and then we'd record them. We'd always make the demos in this nice studio that's kind of how we went about it. There was so there was not really much pressure. I remember walking out of the hotel on the first day and Nigel saying, we have to make this album better than the last record. So that's all we have to do. And I was like, that's cool. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I just felt like, imagine just like all you, you and your four mates over the space of four years, like coming down to London. And then if suddenly you find yourself in this amazing studio in LA with, this amazing producer and with really good songs to record it was like easy it, it felt really easy nigel Weirdly. obviously is nigel godrich who's yeah. probably best known for his work with radiohead arguably yeah that's an interesting choice for this album because i i personally don't think there's many touch points between what radiohead did under nigel and this album was mm -hmm. that your choice to bring him in and what did he bring to the process the making of this well, we made the Man Who with Nigel, so okay. this was like this was a follow-on from that. It was after we did the Man Who, we were like, "Oh, well, let's just go and do it again." So yeah, there's there's definitely, I think you know, Travis is your much more traditional four-piece band making very sort of melodic music, like a you know the Beatles or something would mm. be that sort of very classic band. Whereas Radiohead had that moment and remember always remember the radiohead they where they started was again those songs those kind of very melodic traditional four-piece band types of songs and that afforded them the, the the scope to go and do a bit more orchestral types of music where his vocals no longer carrying the top line like tom york's vocals more like an instrument you know what i mean it's, mm. so it's more like weird rock and roll classical music that they were making and then you've got us and i think the blend of 
a band like us who kind of leaned to the right and Nigel who leaned to the left, putting those two things together was um, a really smart thing to do because it ended up in a really nice place where you got a bit of this cool weirdness that Nigel brings into the room, plus his skill as a recording engineer, which is just unrivaled. He's, I think he's one of the best um, recordists in the world still. And then with us, with our songs, these kind of very melodic songs, and, and it, it just worked. It's definitely one of the records that I, I come back to and I'm like, oh, it's, it, it, all the boxes are kind of ticked. There's not many songs I would take off it. I'm going to ask you to do something that I'm sure will be pretty much impossible, but I want you to pick me one track off this album that for you is a highlight. Now, it might be for musical reasons. It might be for the memories it brings back and you remember recording it. It could be something completely different from those. But if you could pick one track off it, what would you go for? I would choose the last song on the album, the Humpty Dumpty Love Song. I, I recently... That song came around, the song itself came about because we we had a song called Coming Around and we made a video for it, which was directed by this director called Ringin Ledwidge. Uh, he's a really good mate of mine and we've been mates for ever since like 1999. His idea was take Humpty Dumpty and put him in a modern context so he's not in fairy tale land, he's in downtown LA and... <laughs> The video doesn't end well. It's dark at the end, as all of Ringin's videos kind of mm. turn a bit dark towards the end. And so I went off that night after we shot that video and wrote this song called The Humpty Dumpty Love Song. And then we took it into the studio and you record it. And, you know, it was part of our set for many years. And always in my head, you have an idea of that song. But this year, sadly, I lost my friend, Ringin, the, the director. He passed away few weeks ago actually and um it suddenly came back to me this this uh that song and and how the meaning of a song can change even though you think it's about one thing what it's actually about can maybe not have mm. happened yet you know it's you have to wait for 20 years for this song to be to be relevant or even more relevant so yeah it's uh <clears throat> it's been a a weird old year and i think yeah. um this this song somehow it'll always now remind me of my one of my best friends to a certain extent do you think that gives you a flavor of how maybe your fans connect with your music because they well, put they yeah. put meaning onto your songs for you that aren't necessarily the way you wrote them yeah totally i think it's that, that's it's it's given me this weird perspective on it that i didn't i, I normally wouldn't have and um people come up after shows in the street over the years and they will always tell me about a song they're like oh this song really it got me through this point in my life and i was having a really terrible time or i was getting married and we used this song for our first dance or that sort of thing and 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 when you record a song and you throw it out you let it go you you release it and it flies off it's like, a, yeah, it's kind of like a bird, you know, it flies off and it lands on certain people's shoulders and it becomes a soundtrack to their, mm. these big, big moments in their life. And again, you know, like you, you've just pointed out, it's, it's happened to me with my own song. It's, um, it's, it's cool. Songs are so, songs are amazing. They're, they're very, um, I think they're the closest thing we've got to real magic. This album, Fran, for 
Travis was a huge success when it was released. It debuted at number one on the album chart, spent four weeks at the top spot, 15 weeks in the top 10, 55 weeks in the top 100. So it was a phenomenal success. Like you said earlier, you were one of the biggest bands in the UK at the time. At what period when you're in the studio, did you realize that you were making an album that was going to be a little bit special or did you realize that at the time? Yeah, well, there was, we, we were remembering that we were coming off the tsunami that was this Man Who record. There was a lot of momentum from that by itself and people were still catching up with that. And then when we were in the studio, we it was when we were recording Sing. Nigel had done this. Sing sounded great. We had the banjo in place. We had, and we also played, all of the albums mostly live. We were in the room and there's maybe four or five overdubs just to embellish the thing, but you're listening pretty much to the band playing live all the songs, which is not what they do anymore, actually, Mm. which is unfortunate because that's kind of the best recordings are always record the band live. So we record it and then sounded good. And then Nigel, he had this idea and it was recorded on tape as well. And turned the tapes back to front. So you're playing the song backwards turned the tape speed up to twice as fast and had Andy Dunlop, our guitarist, play tubular bells and told them like to play them in certain points of the song. Now, Andy knew exactly, being Andy, Andy knew exactly where to hit these notes. I was, everyone's watching him through the glass going, what is going on? The track is playing twice as fast backwards. Nigel's like, playing around with the sound that Andy's hitting these things and it's going all and then at the end of that he flipped the tapes back over so they're playing the right way around so now everything all the music's playing the right way and the bells the tubular bells are backwards and this was the moment when we all looked around each other and went oh my god that's our that's the big that sounds like Mm. a you know it sounds like radio it sounds like hits and it was really cool and we got it we actually have that moment on video some someone I know sent me lots of footage of us making that album and that moment is just like goosebumps it's so cool well there's loads of those moments crammed onto the deluxe reissue of the invisible band there's live tracks outtakes images all sorts on there it's a little portal back in time fran Mm -hmm. absolutely fascinating to talk to you about the re-release of the invisible band thanks for your time oh you're welcome bye That was Fran Healy sharing his memories of the making of The Invisible Band, Travis's third album. And now we're going to hear from his bandmate, Dougie Payne. How you doing, Dougie? I'm good, man. How you doing? Yeah, really good, thanks. I'm interested to talk to you about this 20-year anniversary of The Invisible Band, going back after all this time. And I noticed on this re-release, there's a load of B-sides, there's live songs from the original album. The tracks have been remastered. How true have you stayed to the original here? Was there a temptation to go back and kind of almost rewrite history to change the pieces from the original (laughs) album that maybe you weren't 100% happy with? No, not at all. We we kind of uh, stand by the the records as they are. Because even if there's moments in records that you're not 100 percent on, the snapshots in time, they're they're, mm. they're our the polaroids of our of our lives. And um, I think this record is uh, the Invisible Band is 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 a lovely record. You know, the songs like Safe 
for instance, that we've we've never played live really, and it was that was a very old song even back then. So that was a, a strange one to do on that record, not one that I'd listened to. But over the course of going through the archive and our, all our demos and our B sides and CDs and tapes and photos and all that to put the the box set together, listening to the record in full, it all hangs together so mm. so beautifully. It's a lovely record. Did it feel a bit like going back in? to a diary and looking at yeah. previous entries particularly when you're listening to those kind of those outtakes that you would have had on the studio tapes between songs I guess yeah absolutely absolutely this has been one of the nice things that's happened because obviously over lockdown we haven't been able to play live we haven't really been seeing too much of each other because Fran's out in LA and but we've been reissuing things and going through all of our stuff and it really it brings it all back it feels unbelievable that it's uh, 20 years ago because mm. I look back at home videos and photos of our time out in LA making this record and it just feels like no time's passed at all. From speaking to Fran about this album, it sounds like the experience of being in the studio and the creative process was all very calm, very creative, very positive in terms of an experience. Is that how you remember it? It became that. (laughs) (laughs) After the storm. (laughs) After the storm, because we uh, had obviously had a big record before with The Man Who, Mm. and we toured that record for somewhere around 18 months or two years. And we finished up in the Universal Amphitheatre in LA. That was the last show of that tour. And I couldn't believe this when I look back at Diaries, but we took one day off after a two-year tour and then went into the studio immediately wow. out in Ocean Way. And um, that seems kind of almost crazy, but obviously we were felt that like we were on a roll and we mm. were uh, there was a lot of confidence and we were feeling pretty up. And I remember we went in and we, over the course of the tour in Soundchecks, been routining a few of the, the new songs and we thought we'd got them up to a point where they were just ready to record as they were and we got our arrangements and everything was was great and every time we played one to Nigel we went nah I don't like that <laughs> <laughs> oh no no I've got to change it and he stripped everything back to basically start from scratch and I, I remember they, after a few days it ended up with me and Fran sitting out in the parking lot at Ocean Way Studios with her heads in her hands, just going, this is, how are we going to make this record? Nigel's going to leave. He doesn't want to do it. He thinks we're rubbish. You know, all that stuff. And it was just like, oh God, this is, it It was it was a very sticky start. But then after that first week, things just started to fall into place. We just got into that flow of being a creative unit with Nigel and, and he took charge. And we went with that and it ended up being a a lovely record to record. Is that because there's just a fundamental difference between being a live band whose job it is to create an atmosphere in front of people and being a studio band, which I guess is more, it's more creating a piece of art. It's more putting pieces of a puzzle together. That's exactly right. You're 100% correct. All the versions that we'd got together in Soundcheck, it was all loud and fast and much heavier. And Nigel was like, no, this these songs, they need to be treated differently. You know, so it was, it was, they were built up from quite fragile beginnings. And and it was, it was a, it becomes a much subtler thing. It's so it's like the difference between stage acting and film acting. Mm. 
In stage acting, it has to be big gestures and loud voices. In film acting, it can just be a, a, a slight movement of the eye uh, can express the same thing. So you, we had to almost relearn how to be a band in the studio after all that touring. Do you remember what the moment was when it started to click into place? What song it was that was that realisation, oh, this is where we're going, this is what we need to do? There was a couple of moments before we kind of got things into shape. Nigel took us to a shop called Black Market Music and we bought a whole load of bizarre stuff. He said, it doesn't matter if you don't know how it works, just get things, just get. There was all these weird synthesizers and little keyboards and little drone generators and all of these things that just we kind of went in and started fiddling with. And there's a little, almost like a sitar kind of drone machine that I bought that you could program in a very primitive way. That ended up just sitting on the floor in the middle of the studio with a mic on it. And every so often, Nigel would just raise the fader and it would kind of come in and it actually comes in and out of the album. You can hear it, I think, at the start of The Cage okay. and it's uh, it, and at the end of Flowers in the Window. It kind of comes in and out. And so this started to create a strange atmosphere in the studio, a nice atmosphere, creative kind of thing. And then musically, the moment that it really started to be started to think, oh, we're on to something here, was when um, Nigel did the backwards tubular bells at the start of Sing because we recorded it kind of the wrong way around mm. uh, on the tape and then turned the tape over and it just came in that, that what you hear in the, on the record, that strange noise coming in with Andy. Andy was playing the, the bells and his note placement was fantastic. And it just was like, when he did that, it was like, oh, this is, this is something a wee bit special. That's interesting. That's one of the moments that Fran picked as well, those kind of oh, really? turning point, yeah, a key point of this record. Going back to when the album was released, and I suppose going into making this album as well. Now, Travis were one of the biggest bands in the UK. The songs were absolutely everywhere. And the title of the album is interesting. The title of the album is called The Invisible Band. And I read that that came from a belief that the music should be more important than the people playing the music. For you, because you guys were, you were a celebrity band at that point. Did it come as a reaction to that, an idea that the celebrity culture and music didn't really go together and you wanted people to focus on what you were doing rather than who you were? Well, strangely, it's kind of, it's almost the, the opposite because we, um, at that point, we nobody knew who we were. We could, I mean, not even Fran, we, he could walk down the street without getting recognised, even when The Man Who was at number one and the songs were all over the place on the radio. We were pretty anonymous and that was great. That was exactly how we wanted it to be it was like we stood behind the songs rather than kind of being up front and you know we never really had an image as such to to keep up or any of that stuff so we just wanted the the songs to be front and center and us to be behind it so it was it was an acknowledgement of that's the way around things should be ironically when the invisible band hit fran became quite a recognized face it was then that he kind of became a celebrity in inverted commas. Um, so so it was, uh, it was well, the opposite of a self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd like you to pick a track off the album in a moment, if that's all right. And it can be a favourite track. It can be something that sparks off a memory that you remember the making of. It's up to you what that is. But before we do that, I just want to talk about one of the tracks that's on the special edition, the anniversary edition. So there's a track on there called Swing, which mm. I understand is an early version of Sing which 
just from the title alone feels like it would have a very different theme to it. I'm interested to I'm interested to know what are the differences between swing and sing. <laughs> well, swing was the original title of sing. It's the same song. Before Franny had got, written any lyrics, we were in the studio and he was strumming away and going and singing swing, swing, swing. But this was in a B-side session. And I remember going, Boy, are you singing swing? And he was like, Yeah. And I was like, Franny, you can't you can't do that. <laughs> that's gonna that's gonna be a bit keys in the bowl. And he was like, what do you mean? And this is this is the lovely thing about Fran, is that he's got this beautiful kind of uh, innocence sometimes. And he was like, no, I'm, it's about that feeling of freedom, that exhilaration of when you're a kid on a swing. And it was like that, that was the feeling he was getting from that particular rhythm that he was playing. In. And I was like, oh, that's just my, my filthy mind. And, uh, <laughs> and then, but then he started singing Sing instead of Swing. And then it became, that's what it became. Almost a very different story going on then. Go on, yeah. Dougie, pick me a favourite. Pick me a highlight off this album for you. I'm going to pick uh, one of the songs that wasn't a single. I, I think I'm going to pick uh, Last Train. The Last Train was, um, I remember it vividly, uh, the actual recording of it. It was all live, all four of us, plus Jason Faulkner, our friend, who was in Jellyfish and had loads of um, great solo records. And he was in the studio. Nigel had just made a record with him. And he was playing Rhodes keyboard on this. It was just a great moment there's a great moment of something being captured what you hear in the record is pretty much what happened at that moment that really takes me back to um to being in ocean way Dougie, absolute pleasure to speak to you about this album that i know people have a lot of love for and speaking to you and fran it's obvious that you guys have a lot of love for it as well still which is really mm. nice so thanks a lot for your time on the excess long player no problem it's a pleasure <laughs> Access Manchester Long Player, an iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Access Manchester. Dougie Payne and Fran Healy talking about the Invisible Band, Travis's third album, and a classic album ticked off the list for the Excess Long Player. The thing that struck me most about talking to Dougie and Fran wasn't just how much they both clearly love this album and love each other and love the band and the experience of being in the band, but also just what nice blokes they were could have chatted to them all day that was the very last interview in this series of the excess long player there will be more to come in 2022 so make sure you click subscribe or click follow wherever it is you're listening to podcasts and if you are new to the excess long player this is the first show you've listened to well there's a whole load of shows to listen to in the archive i'm pretty sure if you've got a favorite album i've already interviewed one of the people that made it go and check back what we've done so far and if i've not ticked off your favorite yet Get me on Twitter at Mr. Underscore Jim Bob and tell me what album I should be doing on the next series of the Excess Long Player. Cheers for your ears. Manchester's indie rock and roll station, Excess Manchester.